and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 8 again. Uh, We covered a lot of ground last Sunday, Uh, 68 verses, the rest of chapters 6 and 7, and specifically we looked at Stephen's ministry and his message and his martyrdom. And I also told you last Sunday that we'd spend the time today seeking to apply what we studied last week. And so this is part two of last week's message. Uh, I'm going to summarize uh, what we learned last week, and then we're going to look at four ways to apply Stephen's message and martyrdom. But first, uh, why don't we pray together? Father, thank you for your word and this time together that we get to spend in your word. We pray that it would conform us further to the image of Christ, that we may display his worth and glory in the world, not only in what we say, but also in the way we might have to suffer. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to begin by summarizing what we studied last week. Uh, We looked first at Stephen's ministry uh, in verses 8 through 15. Stephen's ministry was spirit-filled. He served not in his own strength, but in the strength that God supplies. His ministry was also holistic. Uh, He faithfully represented Christ in both deed and word. He was serving tables within the church, and he was debating and evangelizing uh, the Jews outside the church. Stephen's ministry was also uh, suffered opposition. When when you faithfully represent Christ in deed and word, then the unbelieving world will oppose you. And in this case, the Jews, they set up false witnesses against Stephen... And they charged him with blaspheming Moses and God. More specifically, they didn't like what Stephen was saying about their law and their temple. And so the high priest questions Stephen in chapter 7, verse 1, saying, Are these things so? These two charges about blaspheming Moses and the law and blaspheming God and the temple. Are these two charges? Are these things so? And that brought us to Stephen's message. Stephen's message is a defense and an indictment. He summarizes over 2,000 years of of Israel's history, and what he's doing is he's highlighting here and there, here and there from Israel's history. And when he highlights these things, he's, he's highlighting very important truths that actually defend his view of the temple and the law. What about the temple? Well, if these Jews paid closer attention to their own scriptures, they'd see from their history that God is greater than the temple. More than that, they'd see that the temple was part of God's much larger plan to dwell with His people in Christ and to reveal His glory through Christ. They wanted the temple for their own glory. But the temple was just one small step in a much larger plan that was coming to its climax in Christ. What about the law? 
Well, if these Jews paid closer attention, they'd see from their own law that they were the ones breaking it. They were bearing false witness against Stephen. Not only that, the law itself promised that God was going to send them a redeemer. He was going to be a prophet like Moses. Moses said they better listen to him. Guess what? They didn't listen to him. They crucified him. So these Jews had raised two charges against Stephen. You're blaspheming Moses and you're blaspheming God. Stephen takes them to the scripture and basically says, actually, it's the other way around. The reason I know it's the other way around is that you killed Jesus, the one to whom Moses and the law were always pointing to. Stephen's gospel didn't oppose the law and the temple, but revealed what the law and the temple always pointed to in the first place. God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ. They weren't to trust in the temple for their salvation, but in Christ. They weren't to trust in their law-keeping for salvation, but in Christ. The indictment is that they are the guilty ones, not Stephen. Stephen's guilt has been taken away through Christ, but not theirs, because they're not trusting in Christ. They are hating Christ. Of course, this doesn't go over very well. And it ends up leading to Stephen's martyrdom in verses 54 to 60. Stephen speaks for Christ, and then he suffers with Christ, but it's not a loss. Rather, Stephen gains Christ in all his glory. Heaven opens for Stephen. He sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, ready to judge Beholding the glory of Christ, then gets Stephen through the suffering. He doesn't lose joy by choosing death with Christ. He gains unspeakable joy at God's right hand with Christ. That's the message of chapters 6 and 7 in a nutshell. Now, having summarized it, let's, let's now apply Stephen's message in martyrdom in four ways. I'm certain we could draw out more. In fact, Nate Byford... Uh, drew out several more ways to apply this passage in in the prayer request that he posted this week on on the city. So use those prayer requests that Nate is posting weekly and and pray them for the church and for yourself. Uh, But I've pulled out four ways that Stephen's message of martyrdom should mature us as Jesus' disciples. First, let's learn from Stephen's message that rejecting God's Word and its true meaning in Christ leads to idolatry, and is itself antichrist. Rejecting God's word and its true meaning in Christ leads to idolatry, and it is antichrist. Look at the end of chapter 7, verse 38. It says, Moses received living oracles... So this is, this is the word of God. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. 
Now, when you hear idolatry, don't think merely in terms of bowing down to statues. We do see that here. But idolatry isn't merely external. It is first and primarily internal. It's something we do in the heart. Notice it says, in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Okay, we're working through uh, the New City Catechism as a family. Write a new question each week on the chalkboard above our kitchen table. Uh, Two weeks ago, the Catechism defined idolatry like this. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the Creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the Creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. You see that here. They were, it says, rejoicing in what? The works of their hands. Instead of rejoicing in God. The one who had just delivered them. What leads to this idolatry, though, is this. They refused to obey the word of God through Moses. They didn't listen to the living oracles. The word of God reveals God as he truly is. It reveals how we relate to God on his terms. If we forsake his word, though, we end up creating a God in our own image. And what we think he should be like. And we end up relating to him on our terms instead of his. This leads to idolatry. But notice first that rejecting God's word is also antichrist. Stephen preaches Christ with clarity in verse 52. He is the righteous one whom they betrayed and murdered. Stephen even gets a heavenly vision in verse 56. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And what is their response to this? Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. In verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they they go on to stone him. Stephen was delivering God's word. He was giving the law's true meaning in Christ. And by rejecting that word, these Jews proved their hatred for Christ. They proved to be antichrist. Those who reject God's word are not just idolaters, they are antichrist. They side with the kingdom of Satan and antichrist. To persecute Christ and his people. There is no middle ground. You are either for him or against him. But here's the sobering reality we must consider. These Jews are religious people. These Jews read their Bibles. These Jews have the law. They claim to follow the customs of Moses. If you asked any of them, they believed they were following God's Word. They believed they were defending the law and defending God, and yet they are idolaters and antichrist. That's very sobering. It's sobering because I imagine nearly all of us have a fairly positive view of God's Word. We, could, we would confess grand things about the authority of God's Word and the inerrancy of God's Word and the sufficiency of God's Word. But did you know there's a way to approach God's Word that actually rejects its true meaning in Christ? 
It's possible to read God's Word, go to Bible studies, teach God's Word, memorize God's Word, come on Sundays to hear God's Word, and yet still walk away an idolater and antichrist. And appear religious. Just like these Jews. You still walk away an idolater and an antichrist. All because we reject its true meaning in Christ. We either reject God's lordship behind the word or we reject Christ as the goal of the word. We reject Christ's lordship behind the word. Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations and the church will find all kinds of creative ways to argue why that doesn't apply to every believer but only those with the gift of evangelism. Jesus commands us to visit orphans and widows in their distress and we'll seek to justify why our schedules don't allow for that to happen. Husbands, Jesus commands us to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for for her. And yet, how easy it is to justify our neglect with busyness, job responsibilities, some needed me time. You know, the Pharisees used to do this too. They would make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. God's commands never contradict one another, and He never gives us commands that He doesn't also provide grace to obey. We don't have any excuses. What's really behind our disobedience to His Word is idolatry. We we replace Christ's Lordship with our own and say, I don't have to do what you say. And that idolatry leads us to war against God. Christ and his kingdom, as well as his own people. Or we reject Christ as the goal of the word. We can read the word for our own ends. The word can become a great avenue for knowing things about God. And you have your pet theologies that you like to defend from the Bible, but quite apart from knowing God personally in Christ. We can use the word to defend our pet ministries and why everybody else should stop what they're doing and join the ministry because it and it alone will save the world. We get disgruntled when people don't show up for our ministry. Once we approach the word, and it used to be life-giving food for our souls, but... Over time, because we haven't been enjoying Christ as its goal and promise, the Word can become a means of defending why everybody should be just like me and live just like me and have the priorities just like me. We even create new commands to squeeze people into our mold instead of trusting Christ's Word to conform people into His mold. How do we keep from going there as a church? Well, we read read and interpret the Bible just like Jesus taught his disciples and like we see Stephen doing here. For example, reading the Bible rightly includes reading the Bible in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit. 
Without the Spirit, we remain blind and self-centered in our reading of Scripture. We will read the Bible for our own ends instead of reading it for God's glory. If we don't have the Spirit. We have to pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us and to give us true insight into His Word and what it means. When Paul goes and he preaches the Word to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, it says that they received the Word of God with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Is that how you receive the Word on Sunday morning and throughout the week? In the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's the way we need to receive the Word. Also, we need to read the Bible from a God-centered perspective. From a God-centered perspective. Our first question when we come to the Scripture is not, what is this saying about me and my marriage and what I should do with my children and how I should educate them? Our first question should be, when we come to the Bible, what is this saying about God? The Bible is about God. Read Stephen's sermon again and circle every verb that has God behind it. He's covering 2,000 years of Israel's history and all you see is God doing everything to advance His purpose. He appears, He speaks, He removes. He gives, He judges, He's present. He rescues, He sees, He delivers, He sins, He turns away, He drives out, He dwells in. The Bible is about God and His purpose in the world before it's ever about us. We must also see that Christ is the goal and climax of all Scripture. The whole of Stephen's sermon here drives toward Christ. Christ is the key to understanding everything the Bible has to say. And that's not an exaggeration. I don't care what your Old Testament professor tells you. It's not an exaggeration. Christ is the key to understanding everything the Bible has to say. Creation points to the new creation in Christ. The image of God in man points to the image of the invisible God in Christ. The flood points to the wrath of God sweeping over Jesus in our place on the cross. The Passover points to the Lamb who takes away our sins. David points to Jesus' kingship. Proverbs points to Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The prophets proclaim Jesus as the shepherd, king, branch, temple, Messiah, Lamb, Redeemer, priest, prince, and peace giver. And there's hundreds more connections. Yeah, we have to work hard to discern how exactly it's all pointing to Christ. But Jesus said it all did in Luke 24, and Stephen is following him right here. If we read the Scriptures for any other purpose than knowing Jesus Christ and conforming our life to His kingdom, then we don't read the Scriptures rightly. We will fall into idolatry, and we will become antichrist just like these Jews and think everything is okay when it's not. But when we do read the Scriptures rightly, not only will we see Christ's glory shining through these pages, but we will live for Him like Stephen did. And that brings us to a second point of application here. Embracing God's Word 
leads to union with Christ in serving, speaking, and suffering. Embracing God's Word leads to union with Christ in serving, speaking, and suffering. We see that God's Word leads Stephen to serve like Christ. Uh, Christ cared for the poor in his ministry, if you look in the Gospel of, of Luke especially, and he taught that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Stephen follows in his master's footsteps. He serves these tables for the widows in chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. A person who chooses not to serve like Christ should question whether he's truly united to Christ. A true union with Christ will produce service like Christ. Commands to serve and show hospitality will not be a burden, but joyful opportunities to image Christ in the way He came to serve and save us. Embracing the Word also leads Stephen to speak for Christ. To speak for Christ. In in, in verses uh, 9 and 10 of chapter 6, he evangelizes and he debates uh, with these Jews outside the church in order to win them to Christ. And when he's brought before the authorities, he also faithfully bears witness to Christ. And in doing so, Stephen is actually joining the rest of the eyewitnesses that Christ said he would empower back in chapter 1 to spread the gospel in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He becomes one of those witnesses. Don't miss this. The Holy Spirit has a missionary character. He fills his people and they bear witness to Christ. That's what's happening with Stephen. He's a man full of the Spirit and when people are full of the Spirit, what happens? They preach. They preach Christ. We must pray for the Spirit to compel us to spread the gospel beginning where we live, work, and play. Who can you share the gospel with this week? Write their name down. Write their name down. Pray for the opportunity to share Christ and pray for boldness to speak Christ into their lives. And if it doesn't happen this week, pray for it to happen the next week and the next. Continue to pray that God helps us. You know, we spoke last members meeting about the possibilities of church planting. You know, churches don't just spring up on their own. It requires planting the gospel in people's lives and seeing them converted and baptized and gathered into an assembly. But first things first, the gospel must be planted in their lives. David Platt once put it this way, privatized faith in a a resurrected king is practically impossible. Privatized faith in a resurrected king is practically impossible. There's too much good news bound up with the crucified and risen Jesus to be silent. Embracing the word also leads Stephen to suffer with Christ. To suffer with Christ. I sent you home with some homework last Sunday. You were supposed to read the passion narratives of the Gospels and then see all the various parallels that we have with Stephen in his suffering. There are numerous, there, there are numerous ones. 
Both get accused of blasphemy. We looked at some of these last week. Both get attacked by false witnesses. Both stand before the Sanhedrin. Both announce the Son of Man in glory. Both get killed outside the city. Both ask the Lord to receive their human spirit. Both ask God to forgive those who mistreat them. When we observe the suffering and martyrdom of Stephen closely, he becomes a window through which we actually see Christ. Christ in him. This is important. Union with Christ doesn't stop with just the benefits of salvation. Forgiveness of sins, resurrection hope, life together in the new heaven and the new earth. Union with Christ also means union with Him in suffering. Why don't you turn with me to Romans chapter 8 real quick. We're going to look at a couple of passages that actually kind of help us make sense of Stephen's own suffering here. Romans 8. Just one book over from, from Acts. And I want you to look at verses uh, 16 and 17. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You hear what he's saying? We cannot have the crown without the cross. Christ died for our sins not so that we could escape suffering in this life, but so that we could embrace suffering in the path of love, knowing that our true home is with God and glory. We will be glorified Him with Him, provided... We suffer with Him. Let's go also to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Colossians 1, a few letters over to your right. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, page 983 if you're using a pew Bible. This is Paul. He says... Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? We know His death is sufficient to save us. There's nothing... Wrong with its atonement. It actually did atone for sins. What then is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What's lacking is the visible presentation of Christ's afflictions to the world. God intends for that visible presentation of Christ's afflictions to be filled up 
through the afflictions of his people, which is you and me. Okay, that's why he has a number of martyrs, according to Revelation chapter 6. He intends a whole lot more to become martyrs as they display Christ's afflictions to the world. It's part of how we will reach the Muslim and Hindu peoples of the world. Stephen is the first martyr after Jesus... Stephen's sufferings, like Paul's, serve to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He is displaying the sacrificial love of Christ before others. This teaches us that nothing about our lives belongs to us, even our own bodies. Nothing about our lives belongs to us even our own bodies. It's all God's. Stephen's body was stoned. Even our bodies are set apart for God to do with them as He sees fits in helping the world to know His love in Christ. This isn't limited to Stephen. There was uh, an English missionary named Helen Rosevere. She died last year. She was 91 years old. Helen uh, used to be a doctor, and she did medical missions in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, It was the rape capital of the world when Helen went to preach Christ. At age 39, she had completed 12 years of missionary work in the DRC, and with little results, the, the people would not listen to her. She writes about this in her biography. In fact, the title is telling of what she encountered. She prays, give me this mountain. And what he gave me was a valley. People would not listen to her. Then came a rebellion, political rebellion. Rebel forces were trying to take over and they ended up taking hostages, which included Helen. And during her captivity... Rebel soldiers brutally raped her, and since she was a fair-skinned lady, she also endured greater mistreatment from them. She began to wonder why this was happening to her. Twelve years of hard work and sharing Christ with no fruit, now beaten and raped. What is the point? At some point, two rebel soldiers, they come and they get Helen from... Where they were holding her, her enemies wanted her help. She was a doctor, and one of their other hostages was pregnant and was having difficulties. So she goes out with these two rebel soldiers on either side, and they come to the place, uh, come into this place where they're holding 80 other Greek Cypriots hostage. And they all knew Helen because she had been their doctor in the community for the last 12 years, but none of them would look up at her. She went through and she began to care for the pregnant woman while she herself was in pretty bad shape because of the beatings and the rape. And she asked God what he wanted her to do. And here's what transpires. She knew English, French, Swahili, Bengala, but not Greek. 
Some of the Greeks knew English. But the soldiers didn't know English or Greek. So what she did was give medical instructions to the pregnant woman in the languages the soldiers knew. And intermittently, she would share the gospel with the folks who knew English, and then they translated it into the Greek for the rest of the people in the room. And so these 80 Greeks hear the gospel while she's caring for the pregnant woman, and the soldiers just think that she's passing along medical advice the whole time. She then leads a prayer out loud, and when she finishes, she overhears a number of the Greeks saying, Amen, Amen. And they're looking up at her, smiling in the midst of their hostage situation. And she said, All these years she had preached the gospel to them, and they wouldn't listen. But now, since they saw that she had suffered worse than they did, they were willing to listen. Stephen was stoned. Helen was raped. God uses the sufferings of his saints to image Christ and him crucified so that others will be saved. That's not to say that we pursue suffering. No, we pursue Christ in the path of love, even if it means suffering. We have to be willing to say, Lord, use me for your glory. Whatever the cost. Lord, use me for your glory. Following Jesus will cost us. The cost, though, isn't much in comparison to what we gain. And that leads to a third application. Suffering and martyrdom pointedly display the preciousness of Christ and inspire greater faithfulness to Christ. This episode with Stephen isn't meant to leave you thinking, wow, I could never do that. You're right, you can't ever do that, apart from God's Spirit and grace helping you. You can't do it on your own, but we can't stop there, or we risk missing how the suffering and martyrdom of others should actually serve our faith, should serve our faith. Just to be clear here, what we're talking about in terms of martyrdom, and I feel the need to say this because of the day we live when we see lots of non-Christian type of martyrs, suicide bombers and whatnot. We have to understand that when we're talking about Christian martyrdom, that we're talking about something different. Stephen's life was not... Stephen's life was taken by those he wanted to save. Stephen's life, that's what makes Christian martyrdom different. Stephen also doesn't pursue death, but love, even when it may mean his death. He doesn't take life in order to spread the gospel. He lays down his own life in order to spread the gospel. So, just a little parenthesis there when we're talking about how suffering and, and martyrdom pointedly display the preciousness of Christ and how this should serve our faith. So first of all, I want to look at how it displays the preciousness of Christ. 
the value of something is measured by what we're willing to give in order to have it. Okay, we, we, uh, we can consider Jesus' parable of the, of the treasure hidden in the field. This is in Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. He sells all that he has. Why does he sell all that he has? Because he wants the treasure. The field. Where do we see the worth of the treasure displayed? The worth of the treasure is displayed in the man selling everything to make it his own. The same is true in the Christian life. God displays the worth of Jesus Christ when His people are willing to give up everything in order to have Him. Stephen gives up his life in this world and it displays for us how precious Jesus truly is. Stephen's death should serve your faith by pointing you once again to Jesus' worthiness and so should every other Christian martyr and every other Voice of the Martyr magazine you pick up, and every story you read about men being imprisoned and women being beaten and for their faith. They should point us again to Jesus' worthiness. And when you see that He is worthy, then you too will follow Stephen in giving everything to have Christ. Uh, going back to, to Helen Rosevere, just a minute... Uh, she once said that sometimes we ask the wrong question. The question we normally ask is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? When the question we should be asking is, is he worthy? Is he worthy? Suffering and martyrdom also inspire greater faithfulness where we are. And we'll see this implicitly in the way that... Uh, the, the rest of the church gets scattered and they go on preaching the gospel uh, next week in Acts. But, but we see this explicitly in Paul's letter to the Philippians that he writes from prison. So I want to take you there to Philippians chapter 1, verse 14. So Paul is sharing how his imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel and one of the results he lists is this. Philippians 1.14 says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So these are Christians back in Rome who aren't in prison. Paul's imprisonment doesn't cause them to run and hide. It actually gives them confidence and more boldness to speak the word of God without fear. So Paul's sufferings is actually serving their faith. It's increasing faithfulness in the lives of other Christians. So when you look at Stephen's martyrdom, it should inspire greater faithfulness to Christ in you. Even in the smaller mundane things of life, which is where we live most of the time anyway. Most of us aren't going to spend our days living before the Sanhedrin. But when we see Stephen faithful before the Sanhedrin, even unto death, that should inspire greater faithfulness 
throughout everything we do during the day. Stephen's death points us to Christ and says, be faithful to him. He is worthy of every ounce of your being, every moment of the day. Be faithful. Stephen doesn't even get to see the results of his preaching. But that's what helps us. We're not in this to see the results. We're in this to know Christ and to have more of Christ, regardless of the results. Some of us have been betrayed by friends. Some of us feel drained by investing in friendships only to see those friends move away. Some of us have been hurt by the very people that we've loved the most. And we can get to places where we say, why bother investing anymore? Why bother loving anymore? Why bother serving if only two people show up? How easy it is to be faithful until someone betrays us and things get uncomfortable. Stephen's martyrdom says that Jesus is worthy of our love and faithfulness regardless of the results we witness in this life. There's an old saying that goes like this, The seed of the gospel may lay beneath the earth until you do, and then spring to life. The seed of the gospel, which you may have planted in your own life, the seed of the gospel may lay beneath the earth until you do, and then spring to life. We have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with that, because it's about faithfulness to Jesus for His glory. Lastly, we learn from Stephen's martyrdom that Christ is near to those who are conformed to His image in trial and tribulation. Christ is near to those conformed to His image in trial and tribulation. We see in, in chapter 7 at the end there that God is present. He is with, with Stephen. He is opening heaven for him. The Spirit is there filling him in verse 55. Jesus is standing at God's right hand in heaven. But He's also near enough to Stephen to receive His Spirit and to hear His requests as He is dying. You see, it's just as Jesus promised in Matthew 28, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Always. He's, in, he's with Stephen when, he's, when things are good and he's serving the widows in the church. He's with Stephen when he's preaching the word and he's with Stephen when he's dying. You see, Jesus never commissions us without going with us. He will be present until the very end no matter what we face. It's as Romans 8 says... Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. you got to get that in all these things. In what things? 
in tribulation, in distress, in the persecution, in the famine, in the nakedness, in the danger, in the sword, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We're not more than conquerors because of our absolute devotion to Christ in all those things. We're more than conquerors in all those things because of Christ's absolute devotion to us. That's the point of the passage. It goes on uh, to say in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Which is another way of saying, you fill in the blank. Angry persecutors, chronic illness, leukemia, oppressive bosses, financial insecurity, The loss of a dear friend coming very soon. Nothing, nothing it says will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Stephen knew Jesus' nearness through the worst. Helen Rosevere knew Jesus' nearness through the worst. Whatever trial, whatever tribulation the Lord will bring your way, Stephen's martyrdom reminds us that He will be near and that He will give us every grace that we need to endure. It is like our memory verse this week, which talks about standing against the devil's schemes. And he says... And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will confirm and restore and strengthen and establish you. To Him be the glory forever. And we pray.